Right now we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. So open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to look at the whole chapter, verses 1 through 21. Open your Bible, navigate on your device, follow along. If you're online, you can go to transcript.calvaryhanford.com and follow the written transcript as we move through the text. The topic we're going to find there, the Apostle Paul challenges the believers in Corinth to be like himself, and so the title of our message is Apostle-like now. (laughs) Napalm. But anyway, let's uh, have a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you this morning for really just being here, just bringing us here to this wonderful place, this great facility, Lord, where we can comfortably fellowship with each other, uh, enjoy the presence of the Lord on campus, and also, Lord, hear your word taught. And now I pray that your spirit would be our teacher and that uh, everything that is needful for our life and godliness would be revealed to us. We thank you in Jesus' name and those who agreed to it. Amen. The world's most dangerous jobs have spawned a few television shows besides Deadliest Catch and Ice Road Truckers. The most recent on the Discovery Channel is called Hard to Kill. Here's the description. As a Green Beret Special Forces sniper who has served tours in Iraq and Afghanistan, Tim Kennedy is uniquely familiar with tough, dangerous jobs. Now Tim risks his life and limb by tackling some of the most dangerous jobs in the world. Episodes feature bomb techs, avalanche rescue workers, and bullfighters. Researchers recently conducted a study to determine the 25 occupations with the highest fatality rates. I find the list a little surprising, at least a couple of the occupations. Here are the top 10. Number one, fishermen and related fishing workers. Number two, loggers. Number three, aircraft pilots. That's uh, thinking about that next time you're at the airport. (laughs) Number four, roofers. Number five, refuse and recyclable material collectors. Or garbage men, I think, is what we used to call them when I was growing up. But that's, uh, that's weird. I'd like to know how they're dying. But anyway, <laughs> it's my garbage, you know, so what, what's killing them? <laughs> and then number six, structural iron and steel workers. Number seven, truck drivers. Number eight, farmers, ranchers, and other agricultural managers. Number nine, first-line supervisors of landscaping, lawn service, and grounds creeping workers. Not the workers themselves, but their supervisors. <laughs> They're taking out their boss with uh, riding mowers, I guess. But <clears throat> and then rounding out the top 10 electrical power line workers, <laughs> linemen for the county. Since you're wondering, law enforcement was number 18 and firefighters number 24. I couldn't find any list for the most dangerous jobs in the first century. But I put Apostle of Jesus in the top five, if not at number one. As far as fatality rates, of the 11 original apostles who remained after the resurrection, 10 were martyred. That's a 91% fatality rate. John was the only original apostle not martyred, but it wasn't for lack of trying. There were other first century apostles. The apostle Paul described apostling as being hungry, thirsty, poorly clothed, beaten, homeless, reviled, and persecuted. In verse 9 of our text, he's going to say, For I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last as men condemned to death. For we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. Aren't you glad we're not apostles? 
But before we finish breathing that collective sigh of relief, we read in verse 16, therefore I urge you, imitate me. This isn't the only time Paul will play the imitation card. In verse 1 of chapter 11, we're going to read, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. In his letter to the Philippians, he wrote, the things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these things do. Before we ask ourselves, am I imitating Paul? We do well to get more of his behind the scenes insight into the life of the apostle. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, the life you are to imitate is costly. And number two, the life you are to imitate is compassionate. Let's take a look at its cost in verses one through 13. I'm sure we all hate hidden costs. They come in a variety of sneaky ways. Consumer Affairs calls one the grocery shrink ray. A couple of years ago, the magazine found that companies have reduced package sizes by as much as 20% without reducing prices. Ivory dish detergent, which used to come in a 30-ounce bottle, now comes in a 24-ounce bottle. Haagen-Dazs ice cream used to hold 16 ounces. Now it's down to 14. Did you notice? then you're not much of an ice cream aficionado, are you? Com companies make these subtle changes to the packages, keeping the price the same because consumers are more attuned to changes in price than packaging. So if, you, if you're buying Haagen-Dazs every day, I mean, you know what you're spending on that addiction uh, habit. And um, <laughs> the price goes up, you start looking at maybe some Baskin-Robbins or maybe the store brand, great value. Actually, some of that stuff is pretty good. It's repackaged Haagen-Dazs uh, for a cheaper price. But anyway, uh, but man, if they change the package size, it's, it's tough. You've got to look at every package. There are no hidden costs with the Apostle Paul. He didn't portray the Christian life as a walk in the park. He said it was like a march of captive condemned men. And so let's count the cost with Paul. Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ, stewards of the mysteries of God. Jesus said he did not come to be served, but to serve. To be Christ-like is to be a servant. To be apostle-like is to be a servant. We've come to think as a servant, as a volunteer for some relatively easy, special task. Uh, and that's okay. I mean, we ask for volunteers. So we're doing this, doing that, VBS or whatever. Would you like to volunteer? But it shouldn't instill in us the idea that serving God is volunteer work. All of us are called to be servants, and we have our service depending on our placement and our gifting in the world, and that's a full-time, 24-7 kind of a thing. It's not something you sign up for. It's something that you are by virtue of being in Christ, and we find that sometimes it's costly and not convenient. Uh, sometimes as a volunteer, you think, well, I'm a volunteer. I, I didn't show. I didn't call anybody. They'll figure it out. They can't fire me. Uh, and so, uh, but that's not the attitude that we ought to have, obviously. A steward was a particular kind of servant. He was in charge of the master's house and household. He was the administrator, the manager, the overseer of the master's property and all the people. Paul's spiritual stewardship was to preach the mysteries of God. One of those was the church. It was a mystery in the Old Testament now being revealed. The church built on Jesus Christ. We've been studying that the last few weeks. Perhaps he was gently reminding the Corinthians that they were saved only because God had directed Paul, his obedient steward, to bring them the gospel at great personal cost. But while they were yet dead in their trespasses and sins, Paul was working to get to Corinth, obeying God, being treated terribly, as we'll see in a moment, uh, as a faithful servant and steward of God. 
Verse two, moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. I love this because it is so doable. You may not have much in the way of talent or ability. Your gift set might seem weak compared to others, but all of us can be faithful to whatever the Lord has given us to do. And so once you have a direction from the Lord, once you have a directive from the Lord, you can be faithful. That is on you. And he's provided all the resources and tools and power of the Holy Spirit and such for you to accomplish what he's asked you to do. You just have to press on. I like the phrase found faithful. Can you be found when it comes to serving? And if the answer is yes, uh, then whatever it is, is doable. Verse three, but with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. Paul was in fact being judged, or we might say criticized by the Corinthian believers. For example, he describes himself in a minute as looking like a homeless guy uh, because of just the way of the world at that time and the way he was being treated as an apostle. Uh, we know that Paul had some kind of an eye disease. He may have had pus running out of his eyes from time to time, dabbing his eyes. He probably was all hunched over and walked funny because he'd been beaten so many times. He was an older individual as well. His clothing wasn't all that great. He says sometimes they were robbed and left naked. Uh, and, and so, um, you know, it was an embarrassment. I remember years ago, back when we met at the YMCA, I, for some reason I went through a long phase where I only could wear white tennis shoes. And uh, I, now, to my defense, I've had foot problems my whole life. When I was a kid, when the other boys and girls were wearing tennis shoes, I was wearing orthopedic wingtips. What does that do to you? Huh? This. But anyway, so I, had, I would wear only Avia white tennis shoes. I remember I was getting ready for a wedding, and uh, the, one of the moms, forget it was the bride or the groom, didn't normally attend the church, but she came up to me and she said, do you have any decent clothes? I said, um, no. No, I didn't lie to her. I said, I said, look, I'm not going to wear tennis shoes. I'll wear, no, I forget. Anyway, it was nice. I, I've had decent clothes. I do have decent clothes. So she was embarrassed. She didn't want her daughter or son getting married by some, you know, clown, I guess. So I wish, I wish I could have come out with clown shoes now. You know, those big bozo shoes. Nice suit and just clown shoes. That would have been so hot. That's why nobody asked me to marry them anymore. A few weeks back, I referenced an Instagram account, Preachers in Sneakers. Now, I'm not telling you to go there, but some of you will. So it's Preachers, the letter N, and Sneakers, right? Pe preachers and Sneakers. If you just t search for Preachers and Sneakers, there's a bunch of websites or uh, Instagram sites. I don't know what's on them, so I don't want you to be shocked. <laughs> Better not to go at all, but if you do, the, the deal was, uh, it's a site about church leaders wearing expensive designer shoes. Started when the Instagrammer saw a pastor preaching in Yeezy 750 Boost sneakers. Anybody have any idea what Yeezy is? Come on, admit it if you do. All right. Some of the younger crowd. Is that what you're wearing in the Air Force now? Yeezys? No? <laughs> According to the website, they are super rare. They retail for upward of $1,800. And there's a lot of Gucci belts and jackets on that site, too. Now, I have mixed feelings about the site, but I think it's safe to say that the apostles didn't wear rare Yeezy sandals. 
They barely had clothing to cover them. Verse four, for I know of nothing against myself, yet I am not justified by this, but he who judges me is the Lord. Paul wasn't trying to justify himself in this passage. He'd been faithful to Jesus, and that was the only judgment that should matter to any servant. What does my master think of me? We spend a lot of time worrying about what other servants think of us. And the only thing that matters is what the master thinks of me. We answer directly to him. Now, that doesn't cancel out reasonable accountability in groups, as we'll see in a moment. It's natural to want to justify ourselves when we're being criticized. It's supernatural to ignore that natural bent and just keep working as unto the Lord despite criticism. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God. Hidden things of darkness, probably those things we do when we think no one is watching. Counsels of the heart would be our motives. In the church, we are to judge nothing before the time. Now, that doesn't mean we ignore things like sin and disobedience. No, we judge them. We'll see an example of that in chapter 5, as Paul tells them to put out of the church a sexually immoral person. It does mean we're to quit passing judgment on one another's earthly service. It means we're to quit criticizing each other in the way that we serve the Lord. As long as a person is faithful and has a direction and a directive from the Lord, if we might do, obviously you would do things differently. Most of us spend our whole life in, in an employment situation thinking, if I was in charge, I'd do it differently and it would be better. And then you got in charge and you put your plan in motion and everybody under you said, if I was in charge, I'd do it better. And uh, that's just, that's why they call it work, by the way, because it's designed to destroy your brain. But uh, anyway, hang in there as a Christian and just have fun with it. Until the Lord comes, great everyday philosophy. The Lord could come at any moment. And when he does, you want to be found serving him as his steward. Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one against the other. The things were the figures, or we would say the illustrations that we looked at earlier in this chapter and in chapter 3. He compared himself and Apollos figuratively to farmers, builders, servants, and stewards. He used himself and Apollos as examples to imitate so that the believers could learn in them how to serve on the earth. The Corinthians were thinking beyond what was written in God's word by bringing human wisdom to bear on spiritual things. One result was that they were being puffed up by embracing one teacher over another. And so they all had the common faith once for all delivered to the church, but then they were picking and choosing from uh, the Greek uh, Hellenistic culture and philosophy and kind of going in a different direction and trying to integrate certain things. We've been seeing that in previous chapters. Verse 7, for who makes you differ from another? What do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did not indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? So who makes you differ from one another? Paul's point seems to be that each of us has our own unique gifting and personality from the Lord. If it's from him, we shouldn't really judge one another because uh, it, it was the Lord. So if you get, I'll use myself, if there's something you don't like about me, blame God. Uh, I'm kind of kidding, right? Not getting it today. I'm just not getting it done. So what do you have that you did not receive? Even your natural abilities are gifts. Certainly any supernatural abilities are. 
Why do you boast as if you had not received it? In other words, why are you filled with pride drawing attention to yourself because of your supposed abilities? Anytime a man or woman draws you to themselves, that's just carnal. It's wrong. Verse 8. You are already full, you're already rich, you've reigned as kings without us. And indeed, I could wish you did reign, that we also might reign with you. I don't think we have to wonder if this was sarcasm. Of course it is. But since it's in the Bible, we see that it's sanctified sarcasm. So there is a sanctified sarcasm. I love it. It's my biblical, this is my life verse from now on. You know, people pick a life verse, this is mine. A recent study published in the Babylon Bee found that people who pepper their speech with sarcasm are great witnesses, way better than lame Christians who are nice all the time. The Babylon, anybody familiar with the Babylon Bee? It's fake news, fake Christian news. So I quoted from them, get it? The whole thing is sarcastic. It's like tremendous. The Corinthians were living like kings while the apostles were grinding out the ministry. They had no spiritual credibility because they were short on sacrifice and suffering. Now is not the time to think we're reigning. It's not the time to enjoy being rich with this world's goods or to work only to be full and satisfied with earthly pleasures. No, it's the time for farming and for building and for serving and for stewarding while the master is away. Verse 9, for I think that God has displayed us, the apostles last, as men condemned to death, for we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. The word displayed might refer to the doomed gladiators who were forced into the amphitheaters to fight and die. I say might because other scholars say it refers to condemned criminals who were exhibited last after the gladiators who were devoured by wild beasts as a sort of finale to the event. You knew the event was over when they threw people out in bags and the beast came out and started eating them. That was like the fat lady singing. The word spectacle refers to the custom of parading conquered people chained through the streets on the way to the amphitheater. And so while the believers in Corinth were armchair quarterbacking their church, the apostles were going about risking their lives, persecuted by the world, in order to take the gospel everywhere they were sent made a spectacle both to angels and to men. This is just such an interesting uh, statement to me that Paul mentions angels and he mentions them before men. And it gives you the impression that angels are watching God's plan unfold and they don't really understand it either. I mean, I guess I would think that angels being super intelligent would know all about what God is doing, but it seems like they don't. uh, And they look at the apostles in a way similar sometimes to the way humans do wondering what's going on. And I'm sure if you're just even the average angel, you think, hey, Lord, let me do that. Whatever you've got Gene doing, I can do better. And I've got some power to back it up. I mean, why don't we go that route? And the Lord just says, hey, patience, this is all unfolding according to the plan of redemption. We are fools for Christ's sake. You're wise in Christ. We are weak. You are strong. You are distinguished. We are dishonored. The Corinthians thought of Paul as foolish, weak, and dishonored. His comparison is obviously more of his sarcasm. The value system by which the believers were judging was exactly the opposite of what it ought to have been. No matter how hard we try, the world's value system is always creeping in to the way we evaluate ministers and ministries. Let's say, we'll use myself as an example again. Let's say somebody's meeting me for the first time. They don't look at me and say, or any pastor, they don't look and say, 
where are your stripes on your back or where's the black eye or where's the disease or where's your shabby clothing or where's the limp? Because that's what a servant of Christ should look like. On the other hand, they might look and say, whoa, nice Gucci belt and Yeezy sneakers. This guy's a charlatan. And so we all somewhere fit in the middle where everybody's kind of comfortable. Well, you, okay, I can see maybe you could be a pastor, and obviously you're from California, and obviously you're in Calvary Chapel, and so that works, you know, it, it just the, and stuff. But we have that judgment. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just saying we have to be careful with things like that because we would tend to write off the person that, that, that looks homeless and maybe the person at the other end as well before we know anything about the gospel that they're preaching and whether they've been sent by the Lord. Uh, and, and so we do have it. We do judge. I mean, just admit it. We do it, and it turns into criticism if we're not careful, and that's all Paul is talking about. He says, verse 11, to the present hour, we hunger and thirst, we're poorly clothed, beaten and homeless. We labor, working with our own hands, being reviled, we bless, being persecuted, we endure, being defamed, we entreat. We have been made the filth of the world, the off-scouring of all things until now. Most of these descriptions need no further explanation. I would just point out that Paul was not exaggerating. He and the other apostles suffered all these and much more. He could have added imprisonments and shipwrecks and many other terrible beatings. Filth is the dust and dirt of the ground swept up and thrown away. Offscouring is stuff that sticks to your pots and pans after cooking and needs to be scrubbed off. Alternate translations are scum and garbage. Put that on a poster announcing an outreach. One night only, the filth and offscouring of the world have come to Hanford. Or think of it as a name for a Christian band. Filth and offscouring. Skillet comes close, although that's not why they chose that name. Or a best-selling book, 40 Days of Scum. That's my favorite. I'm going to write that. 40 Days of Scum, How to Be Apostle-like. Now, this is the nitty-gritty of being an apostle and therefore being apostle-like. Now, hear me. I'm not saying we have to have these experiences as imitators of the apostles. I know few people in the West who do. Although elsewhere, most of our brothers and sisters in Christ are being mistreated in just these terrible ways. So this is nothing new. Uh, we're just, I'm going to use the word fortunate in the West. I'm not sure if we're fortunate spiritually, but we are fortunate that we don't have to suffer in these ways. But I'm not talking about the suffering itself. We are to imitate the apostles' faithfulness as servants. If you imitate faithfulness, if you make it your own, then whatever service you're called into will dictate your experiences. If you're called to be an apostle and you're the apostle Paul in the first century, God's going to show you how many things you're going to suffer in order to bring the gospel to people around the world. Uh, you know, so it just depends. So faithfulness is what we imitate, and that is doable. And you might know up front that it's going to be costly from time to time, and you need to embrace the reality of suffering as servants and be ready for it. Now, secondly, the life you are to imitate is compassionate. We haven't mentioned one of the toughest jobs of all. It's one that's not going to appear on any list, but it should. It should be at the top of the list, and that is parenting. If you're a parent, no argument there. If you're not a parent, you'd best just keep your mouth shut. If you're that person that thinks, when I have kids, they're not going to act like that, and you are cursed. You've just cursed yourself. It's like a generational curse. 
for my part, I look at kids misbehaving and I think, great, that's so fun. I love that. You have no control over that three-year-old. A three-year-old is dominating your world. Anyway, I love it. The Apostle Paul suddenly becomes, uh, becomes Papa Paul, compares himself to a father who will discipline the children with a rod if necessary. The way the Corinthians were treating Paul, you'd think he'd just write them off and devote himself to believers in Philippi. Instead, he had the compassion of a parent. Verse 14, I do not write these things to shame you, but as my beloved children, I warn you. Paul dealt with believers in a context of loving them and of always having their best interests in mind. If he used sarcasm or if he spoke bluntly, it was because he considered them his spiritual family. For though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers, for in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. There were no believers in Corinth when Paul arrived. As a steward of the mysteries of God, Paul preached the cross, people responded and were saved. Why dishonor him by criticizing his style of ministry and prefer the sneakers of others who had made no real investment in them? Therefore, I urge you, imitate me. Certain words and phrases get introduced into discussions and make the rounds before they become overused. For a while now, believers have been describing certain distinctives of their church or beliefs as being in our DNA. Has anybody used that phrase around you? That's just in our DNA as Christians or as Calvary Chapel or whatever. You might say studying future prophecy is in our DNA. Uh, and so, uh, you know, it, it, I understand uh, it, 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 you're going to go in that direction because that's how you grew up and that's how you're wired. Well, since, Paul had spent, uh, since God had sent Paul to be the founder of the church in Corinth, they ought to have imitated him and ought to have been in their DNA to be like him, to have his values. He shouldn't have had to remind them to be like him. He, there were no Christians in Corinth until he got there and then they got saved and he was the only Christian that they'd ever seen. And of course they're gonna be like him because they don't know what else to do. But instead, they went after other things. For this reason, I've sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord. He will remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach everywhere in every church. Timothy was one of the best known of Paul's companions and fellow laborers. He describes him as his beloved and faithful son. First Timothy, he writes to him as my true child in the faith. In second Timothy, he addresses him as my beloved child. You can bet Timothy had Paul's DNA and that he could and restore, uh, would restore Paul's philosophy of ministry. Now, some are puffed up as I thought, uh, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you shortly, if the Lord wills, and I will know not the word of those who are puffed up, but the power. Apparently, some of the believers in Corinth thought that Paul was afraid to visit them. Seriously, with the dangers Paul faced every minute of every day, do you really think a puffed up carnal Couch potato Christian is going to strike fear into his heart. Oh, the Corinthians. Paul trusted in the power of the cross, not the word of those integrating worldly wisdom with God's word. For the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. One commentator remarked, the final test of wisdom is power. The word of the cross is not only the power to mentally illumine, but also to morally save. We talk a lot about psychologies or philosophies or other religions. Uh, those are word, you might say. That is the word of men. And if you follow them, some of you have over the years and, and brought them into your life before you were a Christian, some after you were a Christian, none of them have any power. There's no power in any human philosophy or any non-Christian religion or any psychology 
for you to change. Many of you, if you were saved as an adult, you tried to change in different ways over the years, and you could sometimes have a modicum of success. But then you got saved, and you were radically transformed by the presence of God, the Holy Spirit, in your life. You had the power to say no to sin and yes to God. And that's what Paul is saying. He's going, I don't, I don't care about all this word that you're bringing in. It's useless. All it can do is undermine the word of God. And so I'm coming to you not with some word of philosophy or liturgy or the way of doing things, but in the power of God. And who do you think is going to win that discussion? I think Paul is. And so that's the test, power. Verse 21, what do you want? Shall I come to you with a rod or in love and a spirit of gentleness? Dads and moms always prefer love and a spirit of gentleness, don't we? I always despaired at those wait until your father gets home days. Pam would call and say, I had to tell them to wait until you get home. And then the hammer's going to fall. Well, not a hammer. I guess that wasn't funny. But. <laughs> had to come with a rod and deal with that. Paul was filled with compassion for them. He might think it was easy because after all, they were his children. What are you supposed to do? Not so. It's really easy to disown or abandon spiritual children. His so-called kids were, after all, dishonoring and disowning him. Over the year, I've been in ministry a long time now. Not, you know, it is. Just, it is what it is, 35 years. And at that time, I've known a lot of different pastors, good men, can't wait to get out of their church. I mean, they'll do anything to get away from the people in their church. And sometimes I, I kind of almost agree with them. I mean, the things that people do, are, it's insane. And, and so, but then it's always, oh, the Lord's calling me on. Uh, God bless you. It's been great here. You know, I mean, they can't wait to get out the door. Nobody gets up and says, I'm finally escaping. I, I had to pull a lot of strings to get out of here. But, you know, it's sad. Uh, Paul said, hey, these are my kids. I can't disown them any more than I would disown my own children, even though it seems like they kind of hate me right now. Uh, it's to their detriment, and I need to, I need to help heal them. Factor in that apostling was life-threatening, and you see how incredible it was that Paul maintained compassion. I mean, uh, you know, if it was me, I would say, hey, I almost died for you. What have you done for me? But Paul's like, well, you know, let's, let's deal with this. Let's take over. I mean, he had some harsh things to say, but it was in love. He was afraid that they would be ruined. Their treatment of him hurt him, but it could not cause him to quit on them. And so the thing we learned from Paul here is compassion. In English, the word imitate can mean two almost contrary things. It can mean to pretend or to do an impression of, or it can mean to choose or to take something as one's own. I'll know if I'm pretending to be apostle-like if I refuse to pay the cost as a servant, or if I have no compassion upon others, especially those who wrongfully malign me. Hopefully, we can all be found choosing to be apostle-like, and that means being faithful and seeing how all that shakes out. Let's pray.